Now, of course, we've heard a lot in the last few days about the closure of Bewley's Cafe on Grafton Street in Dublin. And of course, in this case, you've probably heard or have read a fair amount about its Quaker roots and the, the core of its history. But Bewley's is actually just one part of the broader and, and often quite fascinating history of coffee shops and indeed of tea and coffee consumption in Ireland. Uh, probably fair to say that now amid the lockdown, we are drinking more tea and coffee than we ever did before. But the story of these beverages and how they came to Ireland is truly an international one. And it does talk about how Ireland is connected to the world beyond these shores. And Donald Fallon's with us to tell us all about it. Donald, good afternoon. How are you? Good to be here, Gavin. Do you have good any particular Bewley's memories? Oh, many over the years. Yeah, it was always a, a favourite rendezvous point of mine. And I loved, I loved the uh, Westmoreland Street branch. Mm. And I thought it was so weird in, in recent times to, to walk into what was a Starbucks with the, the ghost signage of, of Bewley's, you know, kind of Dublin past uh, still still around it. So, I mean, Grafton Street was, was the, last, the last man standing. Uh, so to speak. Mm, yeah, they do, does sort of have this sense of finality to it this time though that it's had so many closures and then being able to come back like a phoenix from the flames it seems that this one might be the time that, it, that it's that gone for good. But uh, to talk about what you wanted to talk about today um, the story of Bewley's can't really be severed from the bigger picture of, of how the Irish drink tea and coffee. Yeah, and, and you know, to be honest I mean, Bewley's is like a cat, you know it seems to have at least nine lives and rumours of its demise have, have been you know greatly exaggerated in the past so you know, I remind listeners that we've been here before most famously 2004, uh, and it's been rumoured time and time again to be closing and then re-emerge. But yeah, I think you're right. I think the the economic reality that we're in now, the situation is, is a little bit different. So this morning we'll talk a bit about Bewley's, but you know, I mean, Bewley's changed the game entirely when it came to coffee shops in Ireland. But this story is something much broader. You know, we're kind of talking about international tastes, international markets, and how this tiny little island, you know, and on, on its own fell in love with with tea and coffee. Mm. And we actually consume more tea per capita than any nation on earth, which is incredible. Wow. We, we really? are also more leading, tea yeah, than anyone else in the world. Per capita, per capita now. I'm not saying we drink, we don't drink more off the stuff than yeah. larger nations, but by head we do. And we're also great consumers of coffee. And I mean, I don't think you, you don't need a degree in sociology or whatever to figure out why the character of Mrs. Doyle in, in Father's Head resonates <laughs> in the way that she does. This love affair between the Irish and, and tea and more latterly coffee. Uh, is, is a remarkable hidden history. And I suppose it's not all that surprising given the old saying about how you wouldn't do something for all the tea in China that the story of Ireland's love affair with tea does actually begin in China. And before there was even a branch of Bewley's, I mean, before you could sit down in Bewley's anywhere uh, in, in Dublin City or beyond, the Bewley's family really put themselves on the, on the commercial map in Ireland by importing tea direct from China in the 1830s. And that was an amazing journey. I mean, no one had ever done this before. This, the, direct, the first ever direct journey from China to Ireland mm is basically done to bring tea here. And this ship docks in, in Dunleary. And what they've done really is they've they done away with the middleman. You know, traditionally 19th century trade to the Far East and beyond was controlled by you know, very unscrupulous, very corrupt uh, commercial interests, the East India Tea Company and the like. Mm. But the, the Bewley family succeeded in, in, in cracking that. So not only was China the origins of their success in the sense that that was where tea came from, but I mean, you see that later on in the name Bewley's Oriental Cafes, you know, emblazoned ah, over the doors. So I never realised that was the origin it, of the name being over the door. So the roots of it is there in China. Remarkable. Uh, it's also sort of reassuring to think that there was at one point direct contact between China and Ireland that didn't pose a massive public health hazard as well. I mean, I hope we <laughs> were back to those times before too long. And um, we probably think, though, of coffee as being a fairly modern invention, but actually it's surprisingly old as well. Yeah, by comparison to tea, I mean, I, in Ireland anyway, I mean, the joke is there was no coffee in this country before the Celtic Tiger, which isn't true. Even even in Dublin, you go back to the likes of the Coffee Inn, Marx Brothers. I mean, coffee's been around for a long, long, a long, long time. But it is something we tend to think of as a very recent in, invention. Coffee goes back to at least the 15th century. 
uh, with its origins in, in Ethiopia. And actually, coffee had its first boom in these islands in the late 17th century. Forget, they were talking a world long before Starbucks, mm. turn of the 17th into the 18th century with the birth of the coffee house. Uh, and speaking of coffee houses, it probably won't be too much of a surprise to anyone who follows a bit of current affairs online or who follows a lot of English media. They'll occasionally see uh, people tweeting links to sto- stories that are published on Coffee House, which is a particular blog yes. by The Spectator. And it's probably not all that surprising when you understand the, the basis of that name, that the coffee houses of old, after which that part of the internet is named, uh, they were exclusively male and they were also exclusively posh. They were. I mean, you, you had to be of the educated classes to get into them. And their rise in kind of England and Ireland really coincides with the emergence of, I mean, what's happening in the 18th century? Well, there's a new press, you know, there's newspapers in a way there hadn't been before. And coffee houses were kind of places that men of a certain kind, men of means, went to talk about politics. So insofar as you could talk politics in Britain in the 18th century <laughs> without ending up in prison, you know, it was where you went to debate the issues of the day, religion, politics, uh, all of that. So today we always joke in Ireland about kind of you know, barstool pontificators, people who can sit in the barstool and talk about politics all day. But in the 18th century, I suppose, those kind of jibes were made about the coffee houses. And Jonathan Swift had a great insult about them, which actually popped up in the British press uh, post-Brexit, kind of historically conscious English journals had a field day with it. But Jonathan Swift said about the coffee houses that too many mistake the chatter of the London coffee house for the feeling of the empire. So, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that this was where the kind of privileged class, if you will, went to talk about uh, went to talk about the issues of the day. But I mean, coffee, if you could get coffee, you, you were someone important. It was the British East India Trading Company, the Dutch East India Trading Company, who were bringing this stuff into Ireland, East Indian spices, Indonesian coffee, South African wine, you know, all of this on terms very unfavourable to the locals and very much just for the privileged at home. I like the parallels between the chatter of London coffee houses and how people mistook that to be the feeling for the empire with the chatter of the Donny and Esbitt's barstool economists uh, of the last 10 or 15 years and trying to figure out whether that was what Ireland truly wanted <laughs> as well. I think that's that's a matter that's still open for debate. Um, talk to me though ab- about the politics of actually which of those two beverages that you actually drank because it was possible that world events could change you and send you off your tea and onto coffee or vice versa. Well, Changing kind of political situations in different parts of the world could always impact availability. You know, if there was a war happening in, in, in the Far East, for example, getting tea was harder. But there were other things like the Boston Tea Party, for example. I've always loved that name. But I remember in school thinking that was very strange. The Boston yeah. Tea Party. Tea Party is a peculiar yeah, name. They were having crumpets and that they were all drinking out of lovely ceramics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tea Party is an unusual name for chucking lots of something into into a river. But it meant that in the United States, you know, at the time of the Tea Party, it became kind of unpatriotic in many eyes to, to drink tea in the 1770s. And a lot of those kind of first generation American patriots switched to coffee. And that would have influenced, you know, sympathizers of the American Revolution, including here uh, in Ireland. So, I mean, tea and coffee at different times could be synonymous with different political traditions, which is which is kind of funny. Uh, let's go back to Bewley's, though, because they do play an important role at this point, because if we're talking about how coffee houses are the preserve of, of the elite of, of British or Irish society, then Bewley's are quite important because they change the game and they make sure that coffee is attainable to everyone. They opened the doors, so to speak, to coffee in Ireland. I mean, the first branch is actually on South Great Georgia Street in Dublin, 1894, and then Westmoreland Street follows after. And I think the ads, the ads are brilliant because they're just to the point. Coffee, 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 freshly ground on the premises daily. And apparently Ernest Bewley, who's one of the, the pillars of the Bewley story, would actually give demonstrations. Like he would grind coffee in front of kind of bemused uh, Dubliners at the back of the shop every day. So the idea that, you know, the doors of this place were open and you know, relatively cheaply, one could walk in, no matter what they did, you know, from, mm. from the window cleaner to the Dublin Metropolitan policeman to the stockbroker, 
everyone could walk in the doors of Bewley's and relatively easily afford uh, a cup of coffee. So that was a, an enormous game changer. In these islands, actually, Bewley's is among the very first popular coffee shops. Uh, what year did you say that ad was for? Coffee, coffee, coffee? Because it sounds very That's, 2020, just the idea it does, of here, it? coffee, 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 that will do. Like that, that sells the product all by itself. You don't need I to say anymore. The ad's from 80 and 94 and it just reads like it fell out of a magazine 10 years ago. Yeah. It's absolutely brilliant. Unbelievable. Um, talk to us though about the, the Grafton Street branch because if Beauties was important in trying to make sure the coffee was attainable, there was still a kind of a sense of, uh, of luxury or something decadent about how Grafton Street was kitted out. I mean, the feel of, 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 of a Parisian cafe when you step uh, inside of it. And I'd recommend to listeners, if it is within your limit, if you're allowed to go that far from your front door, to just stop outside Bewley's on Grafton Street and look at the building. I mean, I love the kind of Art Nouveau, the style, the mosaic tiles. Mm. And actually, if you look at it, what, what, what you see in the tile work is influenced by Egypt. They just discovered the Great Tomb in 1922, British explorers in Egypt. And these islands went into a kind of Egyptian, you know, overload, just went totally Egyptian mad ah, around wow. the time. So you see, like, when you look at the the, the, the Bewley's tiling, it's it's from that time and it's kind of, kind of paying homage to, to Egypt. So it's both kind of very, it's very kind of art deco, it's very Parisian, it's very, you know, of that, of that style and fashion, mm. but there's also this international nod towards Egypt. So the whole thing, the whole experience of going to Bewley's from, looking at the building, the sitting inside the building, it was all very much international flavour. That was the, the style of the day. I actually think that, that that's extraordinary that the styling of that is influenced by the fact that an archaeologist found Tutankhamun a couple of years earlier and suddenly <laughs> there was this, this Egyptian fetish. I mean, that, it's incredible. Um, Beauties, of course, though, be, being lavish and there, there were some lavish coffees if you wanted in there, but part of what made it important and made coffee attainable for Irish people is that there was also a kind of an Irish no-frills coffee in there yep. as well. There was, yeah. I think Errol or Irel, uh, people debate how to pronounce it, born in, in 1913. Many listeners will, will remember it. Some actually still enjoy it, though. It's hard to find. Basically, Irish coffee essence. Uh, and if you ever see a, a bottle of Errol, it's just this big island of Ireland map on the front of a green label, kind of drilling home the point that this was Irish-made stuff. But, you know, if, for those of a certain vintage, because it's coffee essence and not quite coffee, it's always, you know, synonymous with times of sh- shortages, times of, of rationing. It's like the Irish austere uh, version, if you will, of this yeah. great international product. I was thinking there, there wasn't massive forests of coffee beans then somewhere just outside Port Arlington that you could grow these things in that you, you needed to, to, to try and cut the international <laughs> ration somewhere. Um, it would be kind of wrong, though, to write off even the modern story of coffee as just basically being Starbucks, uh, because th- there's a lot happening in Ireland and beyond in terms of coffee innovation as well. Yeah, bringing this story to its to its logical conclusion, kind of where where are things today? I mean, the rise of Starbucks in Ireland is is remarkable. I, I remember when Starbucks announced they're opening a first branch in Ireland in two thousand and five, and by twenty eighteen there were seventy three Starbucks outlets mm. in this country. I mean, that is just an absolutely unprecedented level of growth for any company. But you know, Ireland per head of population has more branches of Starbucks than any other country in Europe. Wow. At the same time. There's been a renaissance, I would say, of kind of independent coffee shops in, in, in this country. And increasingly, you know, good coffee roasted in Ireland. 3FE, for example, they've had a remarkable mm. rise. And, you know, there are others at the forefront of that kind of coffee revival as well. But what you find time and time again when you look at this story is just how much is owed to the Bewley family from that first first ship of tea in the 1830s to grinding coffee in front of kind of bemused baffled Dubliners in the 1890s the Bewley family really just exposed us to these great tastes uh, of the world Yeah it's, it's remarkable and I think that, that's a point that's been overlooked in a lot of the obituaries for uh, Bewley's and Grafton Street in the last couple of days that it wasn't just a cafe or an institution in its own right but actually it was the last uh, embodiment of how coffee had come to Ireland in the first place 
absolutely remarkable stuff Donald as ever thank you very much Donald Fallon is a historian he is the author of the Come Here To Me books and he is the host of the Three Castles Burning podcast 